three, two, one. Nice. Okay, brilliant. I'm going to shut up now uh, and hand over to Robin. This is Mikey, and we've been working together over the last few months to bring you our new podcast, Reflecting Value, from our makeshift at-home studios. Reflecting Value is a podcast where we explore the big questions relating to cultural value in a reflective space. And in this episode, we're focusing on how we can bring the two very different worlds of culture and health together. You're about to hear from four guests working to bridge the gap between culture and health. They all joined us over Zoom and shared their reflections on the strengths and challenges of achieving this. And with that said, all that's left to do now is to grab a cup of tea, sit back and join us for the next half an hour. Oh, and I'm Robin, by the way. Welcome to Reflecting Value. Hello, I'm Veronica Franklin Gould, founder of Arts for Dementia, which was inspired by a cellist playing very, very high quality Bach to my mother seven years into her diagnosis of Alzheimer's. She was struggling to speak and to my absolute astonishment, her communication skills came back, albeit briefly. Arts for Dementia is a charity that supports people living with dementia to access cultural activities. They're particularly interested in the ways that social prescribing can make this happen. I spoke to Veronica back in November to hear more about this work. I remember at an early UK Dementia Congress meeting, um, there was time for one last question and I threw up my arms and at the sound of arts, there was a great groan in the room. Arts, what a wasted question. Um, and how wonderful it is that things have changed because at the UK Congress, now Dementia Congress now, they devote days or large sections to arts. But God, it was hard work to start off with. Why do you think that is? It was hard. This was hard because because it wasn't medical. And the thing about social prescribing, whose language is often we've discovered can often be challenged, but the great thing about social prescribing is that it gives doctors something to prescribe because with certain types of dementia they can't prescribe anything with others they can it was terribly hard to to reach the busy it was even before they were called community mental health teams but it was even hard to to reach them certainly people in the Alzheimer's society um, they just had so much on their plate that arts was just an awful lot and um, but over the years they have been fantastic so I was particularly interested about integrating social prescribing early on in a person's dementia diagnosis journey. How have you gone um, about approaching this idea with GPs, social prescribers, link workers, and what are your plans going forwards? This is a terribly exciting question because all uh, ever since setting up Arts for Dementia, I've been working towards direction to arts for people on diagnosis to counteract the shock of having our most feared condition. And the wonder of social prescribing, having a link worker in the surgery with more than the 10-minute GP's uh, time, to be able to discuss a person's actual interests gives us the opportunity to reach people who, um, while they're awaiting their 
memory assessment, and it can be months. I I heard um, yesterday nine months. It, you might have to wait for a brain scan. And so, social prescribing link workers can enable people to access arts very much earlier in that frightening period, the most frightening period, when they're worried about um, symptoms, they're worried about stigma, it's a terrible trauma, will my friends keep away, what will I be, all of that sort of thing. If they're engaged in art, working towards a creative outcome, whether it be art, dance, drama, um, men's sheds, um, horticulture, if they're working towards an outcome, a creative outcome, when diagnosis comes, they'll know how much they can achieve and enjoy in life shared cultural interests, their views valued, despite dementia. So it sets them up, keeps them connected for that glorious, seamless, lifelong enjoyment of the arts or new discoveries. So this is obviously something you're really, really passionate about. Um, and I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about how you're going to take this work forwards. So in order to um, press this forward with this, first of all, we had a a conference with the heads of uh, personalised care at National Health and Care in social prescribing um, at the Welcome Collection in May 2019. And since then, we've been planning a programme of um, monthly, it's now even more more frequent than that, uh, regional events, conversations, bringing together um, leads in um, academics and um Culture, Health and Wellbeing, the Regional Cultural Health and Wellbeing, the Social Prescribing Network, Clinical Leads in Dementia, GP Leads in uh, Dementia and Social Prescribing with their link workers, with the arts organisations, making lists of as many arts activities as we could find because there's no good in encouraging social prescribing if, if they haven't got something to prescribe to. And then our aim is that um, local authorities who are brilliant at supporting arts prescriptions, if the NHS can be convinced by the evidence to match fund the local authority contribution, that will create and enable ongoing sustainable arts prescriptions. Veronica invited me to speak at one of these events the day before this interview in order to share the centre's findings relating to cultural referral. The event brought a large range of voices to the same, albeit virtual, room and left my brain buzzing with the possibilities for social prescribing for those living with dementia. And the great thing was that it was just one of many consultation events headed up by Arts for Dementia. Back to Veronica. We are continuing these regional programmes. We will then make case studies and our aim is, it does, it, it, although it doesn't sound exciting, the result will be exciting. Our aim is to produce models to enable sustainable arts to continue not usually arts programs are eight weeks and they're um, time limited and um, funded by wonderful trusts and foundations whose whose support we will always value but we need them to continue too and so because it's no good for a doctor prescribing a lovely arts program only to find that by the time their patient takes it up it's finished so our challenge is to create these sustainable programs for which partnerships and funding and collaboration are absolutely key. Talking to Veronica, it seems as if one of the real benefits in aligning the worlds of culture and health is in enabling this kind of sustainability so that when a person is referred to a programme, it's still available to them. 
So while Arts for Dementia have brought together many voices to discuss these challenges, are there any practical examples that show this value? They believed these WhatsApp messages that were being shared across their networks. I warned Fola, don't share them. They are full of lies, making people scared. But the most important thing really is how will they know if the vaccine will work on people like us and be safe for people like us if they can't test it on people like us? Tell him it is not a live vaccine, mum, and no one will be forced to have it. These clips are taken from the COVID and Me film series, a collaboration between the National Institute for Health Research, University of Leeds and Theatre of Debate, with the aim of supporting different communities in understanding the importance of taking part in COVID-19 vaccine research. Okay, we're both recording. Yeah, we're both recording. I spoke to Professor Sue Pavitt and her colleague, Dr. Shamila Anwar, about what made them decide to make the COVID and Me films. So just to start off, could you tell me a little bit more about why you wanted to make these films? So when the um, pandemic started, it was quite clear that the patient voice needed to be brought into the work that was going on. Um, We needed to engage people from particular communities that were being... um, having very poor outcomes if they contracted um, COVID, we needed them to engage with research so that the research we were doing meant that the results were going to be applicable across all communities. And William Van Toff, who's now the CEO of the National Institute Health Research, commissioned me to start to do COVID and me. And that was the first series of monologues that we um, produced. And then we went on to do a more recent second series on COVID and me vaccines. Broadly speaking, they are there to encourage people from underserved communities, from four particular groups in particular. So we were looking at older people, people with comorbidities who are over 50, those from the Black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, and underpinning that, people from areas of social deprivation. And those groups actually map on quite well to the groups that also have vaccine hesitancy now. So um, it's been quite a useful journey to be able to expand the project into it. Why film and using professional actors? I think for me, there's two main things. There's the ability to communicate this this information to people who can't necessarily read and write, uh, both from my own community and also, you know, from other communities as well. So we've got to remember that literacy within kind of, you know, pardon me, especially white communities is also something that we need to think about. I think that's first and foremost. The second thing is in having those cultural references so that the inform- if there's no point in us producing something that is not going to resonate or have an impact with the communities that they want to reach. And being able to do that in a way that's kind of culturally relevant. So having writers from those communities, having actors from that community was really, really important to ensure that we get the cultural relevance right and that they resonate and they have that impact. Because at the end of the day, people don't want to read through reams and reams of a a leaflet. They don't want to listen through reams and reams of, of, of information, where even if it's on a video, it's about getting those key, key messages right and being put into a format that is entertaining and that is culturally relevant. And I think for me, those are the two biggest reasons why we've done this. It's really interesting to hear. Um, there's so much crossover with a lot of the research um, that I've been doing in this area. 
So I'm I'm really interested in kind of digging down into this idea of um sort of the role of semi-famous actors and in this area and and what 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 do you think that will bring to these these messages? So one of our characters, Varsha, is played by Shaheen Khan, who was the um, actor in Bend It Like Beckham. She was the mom in Bend It Like Beckham. So she's someone that is known and and people um, recognise. But it's been really fascinating talking to her about being involved in the project because she said as a as a um a, an Asian actor, she doesn't often get parts that are a powerful women parts, and this is very much a story that has been developed that is very much about the the female matriarch in that society. And um, do you want to elaborate maybe on that, Shamila? I think first and foremost, just going back to the the kind of um, the point about kind of the the you know the empowerment of women. You know, I think that traditionally it's always thought that Asian communities are very patriarchal. You know, it's it they're led by the men, but actually in reality, it's the women, it's the mothers that lead that that community. And you know, men go out; they've got a life outside of their home, but women tend to have their life within their own homes. They live their life through their children, and the impact that you can have with on future generations from you know educating the mothers is 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 quite profound i think and so it's really kind of helping us to understand and engage and i think at the end of the day the biggest one of the biggest um, kind of impacts for me of the covid and me initiative is actually understanding the communities that we need to be serving and i think that when you dig deeper down the asian community the issues aren't so much about the vaccination itself it's about a mistrust in government and government organizations and that's probably, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, we don't need to sort of go into the detail of that. But I think that stems from, you know, kind of the, the, the fear of discrimination, which has happened in the past, and also institutional racism. You know, so if you actually dig, dig down deeper, the issue isn't the actual um, vaccines. It's about the, you know, it's, it's the messaging that's coming from the government, you know. And, and that is a difficult um, thing that, you know, we're trying to sort of overturn and trying to sort of say that the vaccination is is a separate thing and actually where you know we are trying to sort of ensure that they are appropriately represented within that but i think the power of them really comes from the way that we um set about doing this very much a co-production approach so um we have these um powerful workshops where we bring people together from lots of different backgrounds and they're sharing their ideas and they're sharing their voices and their experiences. Um, and the um, script writers, they're hearing this and also knowing the brief that of what we're wanting to try and do. And it becomes that they use the power of storytelling, and they but they're basing it on the lived experiences of the communities that we're trying to reach. What we've done is that each monologue we'll have a key message that we want to get out, out there, but it's done in a very subtle way. And it's done um, in a sort of, still in a way where people can make their own choices and minds up. And I think that's the difference with, with something, you, you're often left at the end thinking about something rather than being told this is what you've got to do. And I think that's a much more engaging way to make people feel supported that they can make their own decision. Whatever it is, it's about empowering them to make their own decision about these choices that they have um but it's also reminding people that they've got their own responsibility about their own health i think for me on a personal level it's been quite a journey because um 
my my cultural background and my uh, you know is is normally just to you know you, you're kind of seen and you're not you're not heard and I think that visibility is something very new to my community and although it was quite an uh, you know quite negative at first because obviously it's my community that has been disproportionately affected I think that now we're seeing the best of my community coming together and I think certainly from my perspective being involved in this initiative the opportunities that is given me you know, like, for example, doing the podcast with the National Vaccine Task Force, you know, being invited to, to interviews, you know, radio sessions along with Sue um, has been phenomenal. And it's kind of helped me find my voice. Shamila highlights some really important points about the value of using films in health communication, especially when it comes to building trust at a time when false news and misinformation are abundant. But are there any challenges that arise when we align culture and health too closely? It's funny, someone said to me, Mike, this morning, you know, you're a bit of a rebel. I, I don't think I am a rebel because rebels are... Um are inside the system you know i think i think when i talk about this stuff uh, i feel more like a martian you know someone coming in and speaking an entirely different language this is mike chitty who was head of applied leadership at the nhs leadership academy i asked mike if he could tell me why he was so interested in this area of work why am i interested in this area of work well i my, my big beef is that most of what we spend on health and well-being as in our national health service is actually spent on illness management and most of that illness is actually created by a lack of connection to uh, self-expression belonging community culture purpose uh, you know it's the it's the old alienation thing um so, so my 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 big interest here is how by investing more in um whatever we mean by culture you know, what people do, what makes people feel like they belong, how that could actually mean that we could massively slice our health budgets and, and get them focusing on the illnesses that, that we aren't generated by ourselves. Yeah, I think that's really important um, in terms of kind of a lot of the sort of research we're doing is very sort of interventional in nature, sort of how do we make a difference in terms of health and wellbeing outcomes, but a lot of it is lacking the context in which these kind of cultural programmes might take place in. And it's kind of the the healthcare system itself is forgotten about but also the culture is forgotten about because people aren't describing what's happening when people are engaging with it and and then i think as well you know when you talk about um culture as an industry rather than as a social artifact um you know things start to get very weird and and you know essentially what, what i see happening is is the art sniffing around for crumbs from the table of health and care you know we've got 130 billion pound uh, illness management industry in the nhs alone crumbs will get thrown at you know, arts and health and well-being and nature and that sort of stuff. But fundamentally, what we won't recognise is that is that that £130 billion budget depends for its existence on the creation of illness. So yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a really radical approach needed to start thinking differently about how we create health and well-being. And it's not about spending crumbs on diverting people from illness. So in an ideal world, um, this kind of radical approach, how would you see that working in, in practice? What, what would be radical enough to make that difference? Well, it's funny, out my window here, I can see the, the Leeds Teaching Hospitals Trust, which is, I think, a £1.3 billion business, £1.4 billion business. And I often think if we could take maybe half of that money away and pump it into arts, health, well-being, creation, you know, if, if we could only manage that transition, 
we could have much more investment in giving people lives that they value and therefore less addiction, um, less depression, less alienation. We could actually establish a very different uh, kind of community and society. I was wondering whether you maybe had any success stories um, with bringing together culture and health that you could share. I, I suppose they're just absolutely all around us. It's the way that R actually stops us from having to engage so much with the illness world rather than the health world. So I mean, what I'm trying to describe is that the success stories aren't seen as success, success stories because they're not evaluated in terms of pilots and how much did they save us and what did they do in reducing clinical interventions and all, and all that sort of stuff. You know, a couple of the really thing, things that have really moved me over the years, I've done bits of work for over a decade now with uh, Solis who do psychotherapeutic interventions with survivors of... Well, refugees and asylum seekers who are survivors of trauma, you know, deep trauma. And, you know, they do do psychotherapeutic clinical interventions. But, and the things that really make, well, really complement that are some of the really quite profound pieces of work they do around things like just conversation and art and food. And and these things almost don't get seen as health interventions. They're sort of, they're sort of hived off and seen as something else. But one of the reasons why that place is so successful is because people go there because they feel like they belong to it. They're treated as people, not as symptoms and as illnesses and as problems. They're treated as people. And so I suppose, yeah, those success stories are success stories almost because they're not noticed. They're just people, you know, using culture, whatever I mean by that, using their own modes of expression, their own modes of being to connect and to really heal themselves. And I suppose that's that's another part of this model is that... Is that um, we're capable of looking after ourselves so much more when we're given access to connection and community and culture. And it's when we're denied access to those things that actually we start to, to, to need more medical, clinical, pharmaceutical interventions. In, and I'm just trying to think in terms of, you know, I think there's a lot of emerging good practice around social prescribing. But my fear is that the more it emerges as good practice, the more it will get captured by, by the illness management system. Yeah, that's something that I'm definitely finding in, in the research that we've been doing is kind of, the, the scales are tipped so far in the direction of outcome that process is not really considered and what it actually means to take part in that kind of community. Yeah, that whole language of outcomes is deeply problematic, I think, especially when it comes to arts and culture. You know, in health, we, we, we know what the outcomes are we want. We want to take pressure off primary care, pressure off secondary care. You know, we, we, can, be, we can be clear on what we're aiming for. I think when we're into the world of art and culture, we're actually not really aiming <laughs> for anything other than self-expression, connection, belonging. And, you know, there, you know, what comes out of cultural work is is almost impossible. Well, I say almost impossible to measure. I mean, I don't think it should be measured. Um, I think there are some things that are qualities and forms uh, rather than quantities. Uh, and we need to recognise the difference between what can be measured, a quantity, and, and qualities and forms that actually can't really be captured in that same way. And, you know, the world of outcomes is just just fixated with quantities, absolutely fixated with quantities. And also this, this overly simplistic causal correlation, you know, if we do that, we get these outcomes. Well, I'm afraid there's almost nothing in this world now where we can say if we do that, we get these outcomes. If we do that, we disturb this massively complex, adaptive, social, multi-minded system. And we get a whole array of outcomes, most of which we have no understanding of or no awareness of. There might be a few things we're looking for, like does this reduce admissions into A&E? Does this reduce uh, admissions into primary care? But, you know, they're, they're, they're tiny, minuscule slivers of all the things that actually come out of meaningful 
arts and culture-based projects. So what can we take away from these conversations? It's clear that there's real value in aligning the worlds of culture and health when it comes to developing trust with different communities and affording opportunities for cultural engagement when facing a diagnosis of dementia, but there are clearly some challenges. We know that there are issues when it comes to sustainability and funding within this area. Who is responsible for funding culture health and wellbeing programmes so that they're available in the long term? And what evidence is needed to make the case for that funding? We've also heard that there's a challenge when it comes to over-medicalising culture, rather than seeing the ways in which culture can afford feelings of belonging and connection and enable self-expression, which may coincidentally lead to better health and well-being outcomes. I think today's conversation is a starting block for further reflection, and I'd be really interested to hear what you think going forwards. Can you think of a time when aligning the worlds of culture and health was really valuable? How might aligning these worlds change the ways in which you communicate and convey the value of your practice? That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. To keep up to date on reflections from this episode and to hear how other people have answered these questions, search hashtag Reflecting Value on Twitter. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time.